Man, this is going to be helpful today if we can once again uh, put ourselves on those dusty Galilean roads, trying to feel what you would have felt. Like, I imagine there's a couple of different people in the crowd today. How many of you heard these stories first in childhood? Yeah, right. So, it's filled with, you know, I always joke about flannel graphs. Flannel graphs are like the best tool that ever happened in children's ministry. Um, before VeggieTales, there was flannel graph. And uh, it was awesome. But that's, that's like the context. And the, and the stories might seem very, how would you even say this, benign, not shocking. You know, those stories that you heard when you were a kid, you heard them your whole life, they're, they're not very shocking. There might be other kind of people in the room who came to these stories later in life and kind of found Jesus and then began to learn about him. And you might look at these stories and go, man, am I the only one who thinks these stories are kind of weird? What's going on here? How do I understand this? And I think you're probably closer. If you have that kind of like, what on earth is going on here? You're probably closer to feeling what the, the people who were a part of the story were feeling. These are very unusual things happening. And so if we can kind of put ourselves there, or, you know, there's always two kind of places you want to put yourself when we read the scriptures. You want to put yourself there, like at the feet of Jesus as he's teaching. The other kind of appropriate place to put yourself is say we're, you know, we're in a synagogue in, say, the year 68, and we're all following Jesus. We've read a couple of Paul's letters, and now we have this letter from Luke, Paul's associate. Paul's personal friend and doctor, and he's written the story of Jesus' life. And, you know, we're, we, we know who Theophilus is. So when he says, dearest Theophilus, we're like, hey, we know the sender, we know the receiver. And this is being read in church. And the question we're trying to figure out is like, okay, we've made a commitment to Jesus. So who's Jesus? Like, what, who exactly is he in the world? And, and not only that, but who exactly am I supposed to be as I follow him? We know the tomb is empty. We've been given this letter, and we dig in. We're starting kind of a new section in, in Luke. You might just kind of flip back and forth in the first six chapters and kind of go, where, where have we been? I know I, I, I preach very slowly, and so, so it feels like a long time, but really we could have read all of Luke in, I don't know, 20 minutes to, to where we've gotten so far. So if we were in that synagogue in, in like 68, this little clustered group of, of Jesus followers, this would all be happening pretty quick. So as the, Luke tells the story, where have we been? Well, he's introduced Jesus to us, and he's given us some good reason to trust him. You remember, he starts with, hey, man, here's the, here's the birth narrative. This is not a normal baby. This is, this is Mary's story. Here's you know Mary, certainly one of the the sources of Luke's writing, right? She's, he's hearing these stories from people that were there. So um, we're hearing the story of how, how Jesus came into the world. And then we're hearing the story of John and how he is this forerunner. And then we're hearing the story of, of, of these, this couple of people in the temple, like recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. We're getting this little story of Jesus at 12 years old. We're, we're, we're seeing how Jesus fulfills all of these Old Testament ideas about who the Messiah was supposed to be. We've seen the baptism, voice from heaven. This is, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. 
Awesome. That's good information if we're sitting in the synagogue at 68 AD. We're like, okay, that's very helpful if we're talking at wondering who exactly Jesus is. And, and, then, and then out of the water and into the wilderness, and Jesus does what Adam cannot do. He undoes the curse as, as uh, he um, does not give in to the temptation that, that Adam so readily uh, and willingly gave in to. We've heard kind of Jesus presented as the king of the kingdom of God, and there's this, this, this thread of the kingdom, and, and, and this is what Jesus came to do, establish this kingdom, and it's been weaving through the story as well. He's a, remember we talked about he's established reality. Here's what it's like in the kingdom of God. If you have everything you need, and you just kind of feel like maybe Jesus is your side hustle, woe to you. Slow down. Go the other way. You're in danger. If you are broke and lame and have no prospects in this world and your only hope is to turn to Jesus, congratulations. You're in a pretty good spot. That is a reality-defining moment that we've, uh, we've, we've talked quite a bit about. We've heard Jesus outline what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. He's laid down the law, so to speak, uh, at least has outlined uh, morality. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm the worst uh, teacher uh, at Trinity Christian High School. Oh, everybody else is like a teacher and they're great at it. And I like, I like teaching the Bible. I'm a pretty good youth pastor in the classroom. But all of that like, like room management and stuff, I'm in way over my head, right? So I'm always taking notes. And the people who know what they're doing, they're like, don't teach anything the first week. Just establish the rules. Just tell the kids what it means to be in your classroom, right? Just like, here's how we, you shake my hand first. We look eyes, always look eyes. I always tell the boys that, look eyes. Um, and we, you know, we, uh, we read the Bible. We stand up in our class when we read the Bible. You, you know, you got to like define what the rules are. Jesus has done that. He's defined what morality in the kingdom of God looks like because that's what a king does. So when people curse us, we don't retaliate. Instead, we bless them. When people are mean to us, instead of fighting fire with fire, we forgive. When people do us harm, we see if we can do them good. Now, if you were like we all with our wonderful churchy lives go, mm, beautiful. Can you imagine standing there going, we do what? We just get walked all over? What's going to make up for this? This is pre-cross. You and I go, yeah, the, all of that, you know why we forgive? Because their sins are pinned to the cross just like mine. There's no cross to pin things to yet in Luke. Jesus is just saying, look, this is just the rules in the kingdom. You just forgive people instead of get revenge. That's just it. If you want to follow me, these are the rules. The king's law has been blessed and do good and pray and forgive instead of judge. Be generous instead of condemn. And you got to admit, that sounds uh, pretty different than the kingdom of earth. I've, I've never really heard a story like that, especially because it moves us from do no harm to actively be the blessing to your enemies. That's pretty weird. <laughs> it would, sure it would have been. And finally, then last week, we looked at Jesus make this absolutely outrageous claim that in his kingdom... His leadership in our lives, this generous, forgiving, blessing, praying culture, shouldn't just be a part of our lives. It should not just be our religion, but rather it should be the very core of our lives. It should be the foundation that our whole lives are built on. Right now, these two super weird stories about a centurion and a widow. And I wonder where Luke's going with all this. I wonder if as Luke has shown Jesus established the 
kingdom of God, who the king is, and what the rules are, if maybe we're moving into a season of understanding what, who gets to populate the kingdom of God, would that be a fair way to put it? I've, I've written down several ways to understand this this week and deleted them all. I'm not sure I quite have my, my finger exactly on what's going on here, but it's something like, as you hear Jesus say all of this, outline the kingdom of God, you might walk away and go, who's that for? Is that for me? Is that for only the people who have no prospects and are the poor and mourning? Is there a place for me in the kingdom of God? Is there a place for my friend in the kingdom of God? Is there a place? Can anybody live up to this? Can anybody actually live this life where I never condemn, I only am generous? Who's this for? These two stories are so not only like, 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 like familiar and similar, but also completely opposite. These are both healing stories. They're both miracle stories. Luke presents them back to back. He obviously wants us to see them together. And as we ask the question, who is the kingdom of God for? Who's Jesus for? Who, who's available? As this widow gets presented alongside this centurion, if you're looking for a system... I'm not sure you're any closer to understanding. These folks couldn't be more different. There's stories, even though it's both like there's a structure to it, there's like, and then Jesus saw, and then there's conversation, and then, and then somebody gets healed. Even though those structures there, you look at these stories and go, these could not be more different people, more different situation, more different approaches. Why these stories? and Why here? Religious people, whether we're talking about the current, the, the person f- currently filling the pulpit now, or we're talking about the scribes and Pharisees, the temptation is always that religious people can tell you who the kingdom of God is for. We know who the kingdom of God is for. It's for good people. And if rough people, sinful people, people who make us feel icky, people who challenge us, the hardest people to love, you know, on Sunday morning, I just don't want it to be hard to love anybody. It's hard to love everybody all week long. Sunday morning, I just want people who are easy to love. Just give me a break. We know the kind of people we want. Scribes and Pharisees totally did. Who's the kingdom of God for? I'll tell you who. It's for Jewish men and their families. Circumcised, kosher kitchens, keeping the law, You light a lamp on the Sabbath, kingdom of God might not be for you. Certainly not for widows so cursed that they are not only widows, but have lost their only son. Certainly not for centurions so capable in the Roman Empire that they've even subdued the Jewish leadership in their town. Who's this for? I think, it's, I think it's close if we talk about population, uh, like who populates the kingdom of God. But, um, but if we look at this centurion and this widow, there's, there's really not much to point to and say, ah, this is the kind of person Jesus is looking for. This is the kind of person Jesus loves. They just have so little in common. If we're looking for criteria that makes someone fit for the kingdom of God, we are going to struggle. I'm having a hard time finding why Jesus loves these people what they did that was worthy of love. 
I can only really only find one thing that these two people have in common. We'll get to that in a minute, but I wonder if you'd just be mulling that over. What do these, what do these people have in common? That both of them get Jesus' attention. So instead of looking for criteria that makes it possible for us to be in the kingdom of God, maybe we should be looking for things that apparently are not in the way of a relationship with Jesus. Maybe this isn't a story about what kind of person can be touched by Jesus, but maybe this is a story about all the things that we think are in the way that are actually not in the way of Jesus loving someone. And if we're going to call ourselves Christians, should not be in the way of us loving that same person. Maybe this story is about how far Jesus is willing to go in love, how much Jesus loves. We'll probably see that by noticing all the ways that this story are different. That's going to be our best way to, to approach this. So let's look at the things that are not in the way of Jesus loving people. First of all, station and status. This widow is a widow. You know what a widow means in, in the ancient Near East? It means she's stricken with poverty. We are not, I even love that she's from Nain. It's like this, this place the commentators go, we have no idea where this place was. Like <laughs> saying you're from Nain is like saying you're from nowhere, you know? So this, this woman with no prospects and no income from nowhere is in the event that puts, pardon the pun, the nail in the coffin for her future prospects. I don't know for sure if she's going to be a beggar. Maybe some kindly family will take her in, but she is sure presented like somebody who has absolutely nothing. She is the least of these, where the centurion is the most of these. He's accomplished so much. I mean, do you know how gracious and, and kind a Roman centurion you have to be that the Jewish leaders of the community go out to Jesus on your behalf? And this was kind of what the Roman centurions were, were uh, like encouraged to do. Like, hey, build the locals a little something. You know, tax them like crazy, but then if they've got some weird religious thing, just build them a statue or build them a building, whatever. Just keep the, the locals from being restless. And it totally worked. This guy built them a synagogue and all of a sudden Zeus and the Pantheon mean nothing and they're like, what a guy. This guy has achieved in the Roman world in incredible ways. He's accomplished a lot. She has lost everything. He is doing great things for his city. She is not going to contribute very much at all. She's a girl. He's a boy. I only bring that up because Luke makes such a big deal about it. Luke tells a lot of stories, and almost every time there's a, a boy version of the story and a girl version of the story. You, you have... Uh, you have Simeon and you have Anna. You have Joseph and you have Mary. You, you, here you have this widow uh, from Nain and you have this centurion. Luke just goes out of his way to be like, hey, you know how being a girl makes your life really difficult in our society? Not in the kingdom of God. You know how we've made all these hierarchical standards and, 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 and doors and barriers and all of this stuff based on, you know, based on gender and status and all this stuff? Well, the kingdom of God is just not like that. That challenges us a little. Certainly challenge them. 
As you're reading this, okay, we're back to the year 68 in a synagogue, and you see this Roman centurion receive this miracle, go, ah, man, that makes a lot of sense. And then you see this woman from Nain receive a more profound miracle, and you might be going, I'm starting to think that God's love is, I, I, like I'm trying to find the, the borders of it. I'm trying to find who am I allowed to not bless? Who am I allowed to turn away? Who am I allowed to not listen to? Who am I allowed to say I'm better than you? It's almost like God loves everybody. The same. In fact, not only do we have a centurion and a widow, we have male and female, we have just powerful, which is not the same as wealthy, and it's not the same as successful, but powerful. I love, I mean, it's almost like a Keystone Cops episode. Can you imagine the leaders, the Jewish leaders in this town who are like, we sit in the seat of Moses. And then the centurion goes, hey, go see if you can get Jesus to heal somebody for me. And they're like, all right, here we go. <laughs> like, like, this guy is powerful. He gets stuff done. It's almost like not a surprise that Jesus would heal this guy's servant. It's like everybody would do something nice for this guy. The people that should, if there's anybody going to not like, obey this guy, it should be the Jewish leaders in the town. But they apparently are all on board. So he's got people that like, work for him, and she's just surrounded by mourners. The story that Paula read to us just so clearly says, says, you know, she, she's, when we find her, she's at the gates of the city. That's where important things happen. And that's where, if you would expect a powerful person to be holding court, and what we see from her is just surrounded by people of the city, probably uh, professional mourners as well. That was the custom. You know, people would pitch in and hire professional mourners for you. And so this was this uh, ceremony of transitioning her to destitution not only is, is station and status it doesn't seem like there i'm not trying to be a smart aleck either i'm saying like work this out with me it doesn't seem like your station who you are is in the way of jesus loving you is in the way of you being having access to jesus of jesus desiring to love you and while it's easy to nod our heads at that simple truth, I bet if I asked all of you, take the, take the paper in front of you and write down three reasons why you think God has a hard time loving you. I bet you'd, do, I bet you'd be able to do it. And maybe some of them are station. Yeah, I'm from here. Maybe some of them has been your behavior. Maybe some of it has, is your, your class, your job, your whatever it is. I bet... I could ask you, hey, what's in the way of Jesus loving you? And you might go, man, Jesus is going to really love me if I could just get rid of this or that or the other thing. And I wonder if today one of the things you just have to have the humility to realize is that Jesus loves you just the mess that you are. We, let's not be those who go, oh, these deficiencies in my character and my history, they don't matter to God. Of course they matter to God, but they're not stopping him loving you. So maybe it's in their approach. Let's look not just at who they are, but let's look at how they come to Jesus. And like, let's look for some sort of system. How could we understand 
um, who it is that Jesus loves. Who is it that Jesus is willing to bless? First, you have the centurion. At first, I love it. At first, he attempts to impress Jesus. Now, if you were walking on those dusty Galilean streets, that might make sense to you. Jesus has a reputation. And so the, the guy's like, hey, go see if Jesus can help us and tell him who I am. Now, from our perspective, that seems like the silliest thing in the world. If we, we just are all, we've spent the last half hour professing Jesus as king of the universe. So to be like, hey, help this guy because he built the synagogue in our town. Like that is absolutely ridiculous. And yet this is the guy's first approach. Now, maybe we would see something to that. He sends a delegation. Look how much he's done for us, Jesus. He deserves you to help him. But then he changes his mind. He sends another delegation and he says, actually, you know, Jesus, I've thought about it and I'm not worthy. And I wonder if even there's some respect where he does understand the Jewish culture. He does have a heart for the people in his town. And he knows that if Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, comes into his Gentile home, he'll be unclean and it'll cause all kinds of problems. And so I wonder if he just out of that kind of love for the Jewish culture sends another delegation and goes, you know what, Jesus, I've thought about it. I'm not worthy you shouldn't enter my house. And then there's this incredible demonstration of his understanding of the authority of Jesus. He, I think it's, it's just so telling that, you know, the, 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 the Pharisees and scribes have been sitting around as Jesus is healing people going, what's happening here? By what power does this happen? And is Jesus, what's going on with Jesus? Where this Roman centurion knows exactly what's going on. He's a man who has power and knows how it works. As I understand this perfectly. You tell somebody to do it, they do it. Doesn't matter if it's a demon, if it's illness, it doesn't matter. That's how it works in my family too. I say stuff needs to get done and people do it. And that's what I see in you, Jesus. And Jesus marvels. That's pretty good. That doesn't happen very often. I think only three times. And most of the time, Jesus is marveling about how, what little faith people have. Right? Jesus gets back into the boat and marvels at their lack of faith. But here, Jesus marvels. And he says, man, I haven't even found a, a Jew that has this kind of faith. He identifies that understanding of authority as faith. That's a pretty cool definition of faith, to recognize Jesus' authority and act on it. The centurion has a direct request. There's none of this like, you know, Jesus, if you're willing, and this and that, and please. And maybe. No, it's just like, hey, Jesus, game no game. I know what authority when I see it. If you th- say the guy's going to be better, then it'll happen. So I'll just leave it with you. Just direct request. Jesus heals the centurion servant without any contact at all. The messengers return, and the servant as well. Think about this. I don't know if the centurion and Jesus ever met. Is there a story of them meeting? I mean, maybe this is the same centurion from later in the story, but maybe not. So if we're going to kind of try to come up with a system, do you already see how hard this is? If we're asking the question that certainly the first Christians were asking, who's this for? This kingdom of God. Who's invited and who's it for? And am I part of it? And how do I get there? And and how does Jesus love me? Do you see how difficult this might be? We might say something like, Jesus blesses those who humble themselves, who recognize Jesus' authority and have the faith to ask him for his blessing. You like that? I'm not going to lie. I love that. That'll preach. 
That is like, I could go point by point and be like, yeah. So if you want Jesus to bless you, you got to humble yourself. And if you want Jesus to bless you, then you got to ask him directly. And if you want Jesus to bless you, you got to have the faith that recognizes his authority. But then Luke tells us this other story that has none of these things. In fact, this widow has a a greater miracle in her life. This is the first resuscitation story. Let's not say resurrection. Resurrection is what Jesus did. That's that's raised to new life, where this, this dude is raised back to his old life. But healing is one thing. We've seen healings before. This is a brand new thing. So how does the widow approach Jesus? How did the widow approach Jesus? Was it the same formula as the centurion? The widow doesn't approach Jesus. Verse 12 says, And when the Lord saw her, she never sees Jesus and throws herself. This is not a throwing herself at Jesus' feet and saying, Lord, if you're willing. No, Jesus sees her. She isn't asking. She isn't seeking. She isn't knocking. She has no case to make. She's not humbling herself. In fact, I would say just life has humbled her. This woman is certainly humble, but it's not because she has made some decision to be humble. Life has kicked her tail up and down for probably years. You might even say that it was Jesus that sought her out. How beautiful is verse 13 that the dead man sat up and started talking and then Jesus gave him back to his mother. What a gift. Have you ever lost a loved one? And I've been in the room when a few people passed away and you know, I talk about it too much, but it still it happened like 11 years ago and it's still fresh. My best friend died when, when we were 37 and I remember being in that, that hotel room, and ju- or hotel room, that, that hospital room and just the, just the grief and everybody kind of knowing and, and he's saved. I look forward to, you know, playing doubles tennis with Chad in heaven. It's going to be great. But, um, um, but if somebody would have walked in and given him back to me and what if you were this widow that not only is she given back her son, she's given back a livelihood. Like she, she might not be in poverty now. And there might be some justice for her. Her son might be the one who goes and sits at the city gates and, and contends for justice for this widow now. Jesus, where the centurion and Jesus, I don't know if they ever even meet, there is this intimate story of Jesus holding this young man and giving him back to his mom. While the centurion is proactive and in control, all of this just kind of happens to this woman. She doesn't even even have any lines in the story. We even hear her ask for anything. We don't hear her say thank you. Jesus just sees her and loves her and gives her back her son. We know almost nothing about this woman but her sorrow. We don't hear from her at all. So if we were going to come up with some kind of system of how, who Jesus loves based on this story, a, a rule for who populates the kingdom of God, who's worthy to be in Jesus' presence, something like that, it, it might be something like Jesus is driven by compassion and love to bless those who are so filled with sorrow 
but they don't even know how to ask him. Do you like that? How do you reconcile that with the story of the centurion? How do you get your head around Jesus? How do you make rules for who Jesus loves? How do you make a system? Jesus' love seems unruly. Jesus' love seems so out of control that it might not even have any parameters. It might be so invasive, so extreme, that it just really might be that there's nothing that you could do that would put you out of the bounds of Jesus' love. What else could Luke be saying as he tells a story about somebody at the top of society and somebody at the bottom? A powerful man and a downtrodden woman. A story of healing from far away and a story of intimate love and connection and and resuscitation. What could Luke mean except, I don't know who you are or what you've done or where you are in the strata of what you've accomplished, but Jesus is for you. And that sounds really good, but here's the thing. Jesus is for your neighbor as well. I'll give you one more thing to think about. Um, the kind of person Jesus loves. I don't even know if these are conversion stories. Wouldn't it be great if I was Luke, I would have added a verse to each one of these stories. Something like, um, and then the centurion knew Jesus was the Messiah and followed him the rest of his life. Gave all he had to the poor, threw off his Roman garb and followed Jesus. Or something like, and the widow and her son left the family farm and journeyed with Jesus to the next town. How could Luke leave that out? Why would Luke leave that out? Well, maybe it's not the point of the story. Because that's another little thing that we might think is that Jesus loves those who will choose him. And maybe it's even more ridiculously unruly than that. That Jesus loves those whether they're going to choose him or not. That Jesus' love is so profound, so all-encompassing, so unruly and uncontrollable that it just is. No matter how you feel about it. Man, it's one thing to say Jesus loves you enough to respond, but Jesus loves you even if you don't. And that's a wonderful thing for us to think about as we think about how God loves us. And it's a terrifying thing or a challenging thing as we think about that's what we're called to love like. There's no perfect way to approach Jesus. It frustrates me when people try to make systems out of one story or another. People come to Jesus in all kinds of ways, mess it up, do it wrong. I told you I can only see one thing that these two stories have in common, and that's both that they needed Jesus. So maybe if we had some sort of, if we were going to make some rule at all, some principle, if we're going to write the essay uh, based on this, what's our thesis statement? It might just be something like, as soon as you know you need Jesus, his love is abundant, ready for you. Now I wonder if that's Luke's point. That Jesus loves you even if you don't know you need him. And as soon as you know you need him, There's no hoops to jump through. It's simply let him love you. Now, of course, that's the beginning of the story, not the end. This is not, uh, these are not stories of discipleship or, or, uh, you know, instructions in holiness. 
Of course, once we come to Jesus, we begin a life of living differently than we did before. Did you hear all the stuff about instead of fighting fire, uh, fighting fire with fire, instead of that, you forgive and bless and do good and all that? That's a lifetime of change in your life. But the question is, does that come before Jesus loves me? Or does Jesus just love me? Does that come before my neighbor loves Jesus? Or does, it come, or does he have to jump through hoops before Jesus will love him and before I do? I wonder if we just thought about taking away just a few things from these two stories. First of all, what could Luke be trying to say, trying to communicate if it's not Jesus is here for you, no matter who you are. I think that Luke is trying to shock us. These are not stories of, you know, people in the middle of society who kind of have a casual conversation. Their friend invites them to join Jesus. And he has, a, I mean, it, these, are, these are stories that are as far ends of society as we could possibly imagine. What could Luke be trying to communicate if it's not just Jesus is here for you? I think he's trying to shock us. He's at least trying to communicate that the crowd was shocked. Did you see verses 16 and 17? How do people react to these stories? Well, they're afraid. <laughs> I wonder if we would think about that. The love of Jesus is terrifying because I understand love that's based on merit. And I understand love that's based on the person loving me back. But loving somebody that will never love me back and continuing to? Being, having the kind of power that Jesus can love and heal a, a, a servant that he never meets, that belongs to a centurion that he never meets, and also that Jesus would, would be so filled with compassion that he just sees a sad story and goes and hugs and, and picks up and gives his son back to his mom, that these could all be happening. The people are afraid. And the word spreads. It's good to be utterly shocked at the unwieldy nature of Jesus' love. And I'll tell you what, church, if this was the reputation of the church in America, it'd be awesome. That's how the word would spread. We say this a lot, and it's, it's easy to pick on us. We're, it's easy to, to pick on the home team. But man, what if the reputation of the church in America was just the unwieldy love of Jesus? What if people didn't have to live moral lives before we loved them? But what if we just loved them in the middle of their immorality? What if they didn't have to come to Jesus before we thought they were deserving of the kind of forgiveness that Jesus commands us to, but they just were forgiven because we're in the kingdom of God and those are the rules? Maybe the second takeaway would be just something like Jesus is willing to be found and Jesus is also willing to seek out. How do you come to Jesus? Does he come get you or, or do you go get him? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, both, all of it. The centurion goes looking for Jesus. This widow, we never even hear her say anything. There's not a rule. There's not a system. Jesus' love can't be systematized. It can't be controlled. It, it's unwieldy. It's, it's hard to understand. It's shocking. Maybe, maybe third is there's nothing in your life bigger than the love Jesus has for you. Man, I, I have the utter conviction that I can look seven billion people in the eye and say, Jesus died for you. And you're welcome. 
in the kingdom of God. If you would turn, if you would repent, if you would just let the love of Jesus change your life, there is a place for you at the table. There is citizenship for you in this kingdom. There is abundant love for you from the sacrificed Savior of the world. And I wonder if there might be some in the room who are, are really good at just doing church stuff and, and you might walk in, in and out kind of regularly and go, man, but there's this thing in my life that I just know Jesus is mad about. <laughs> there's, just, there's just stuff about me that I know that nobody else sees. I know the song. I, I love the old hymns. I, I'm even okay when you know, we play a little rocker. Like I got the whole thing. You can't do church better than me, but in my heart, I just, I just know that I'm unlovable. You got to repent of that. You are not unlovable. I mean, you are. And yet still, the unwieldy, uncontrolled love of Jesus is enough for you. And if you find yourself struggling, wondering, if Jesus loves you. I don't know if you could look at the cross and, and come up with anything except Jesus loves you, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. I also don't know if you can look at this centurion, his servant, and the widow of Nain and her son, and have any question that there's nothing in the way of Jesus loving you. It's pride that has you convinced that you're unlovable. It's because maybe you wouldn't love you if you were God. But God's bigger than you, and he's better than you. <laughs> and then, you know, just lastly, and I think we've talked about this a little, but these are the truths that the church is called to project to the world. Sometimes the church gets a little bit confused on what we're supposed to project to the world. We think <clears throat> that what we do in here is talk about Jesus' love, and then when we go out there, we demand the world live according to the precepts of holiness, righteousness, and the kingdom of God. And guys, that's opposite. We go out there with forgiveness and love. And then we come in here, and we go, hey, church, how do we live righteous lives? How do we get more and more like Jesus? We're all sinners saved by grace, and we need to, we need to reflect him more perfectly. But when we look at the widow of Nain and go, well, I don't know. Did she tithe? Well, I don't know. Does she go to synagogue regularly? Does she use bad words? Has she lived a life worthy of Jesus' touch? Then we're heretics. We have said something that is true and we have lived something that is false. And when we look at success and power and we go, they must be worthy, we're heretics. Jesus' love is enough for you. And Jesus' love is what we're called to pro profess to the world. And again, I, I, maybe I don't need to say it again, but we are fully for righteous living and training in righteousness, and discipleship, and spiritual disciplines, and putting off our old self, and dying to self and sin, and living to life and righteous living. 
but you don't demand people do that before you communicate that Jesus loves them because that's exactly wrong. And I don't know if you can read these stories and not know that. So, probably not. (laughs) I'll try. I think the call is that we have to come out here and know that we're fully loved. Get over yourself. I know you still struggle. So do I. It's not in the way of Jesus loving you. We have to repent of the pride that tells us it is. And then we have to decide what the message is that we as a church, that you as a family, that that each of us individually, what it is that we are professing to the world about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And if if what we profess is you have to get right and then come to Jesus, we're, we're heretics and need to shut up. But if what we profess is Jesus loves you so much, just like you are, there's no right way to come to him. There's no way that he, he is not looking at the checklist and making sure you qualify. He just loves you. If that's what we're professing, then we're doing the same thing Jesus did. And we're for professing that you got to get your act together first. We're Pharisees. So let's decide. Just 30 seconds from now, we're going to sing the doxology. We're going to go out watch kids play in the playground, have a cup of coffee, enjoy some conversation, stick around. We're a good church family. You'll like us. But let's decide what kind of people we want to be. Are we going to try to control Jesus' love? Are we going to try to put parameters on it? Or are we also just going to be shocked at the people Jesus loves and love people like that?